The children are dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you, please pull out the bulletin insert and open up your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. And while you're doing that, let me set up the next two weeks for you. We just finished our study of the fourth book of the Psalms. We looked at six different Psalms in that book. And we ended with the final psalm in, in book four, Psalm 106. And we're headed in two weeks into the final of Paul's letters to um, Timothy and Titus, with 2 Timothy. But before we dive into 2 Timothy, we're going to take two weeks to deal with a topical issue of the spiritual gifts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the issue of, of tongues and speaking in tongues. And that comes up for two reasons. One, this issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit dovetails perfectly with the message that I gave um, about two months ago on water baptism. If you remember the last Sunday where we baptized people in this church, the message that day was to understand, okay, what is water baptism? What is taking place? And why are people doing this? And if you remember... The answer I gave in part was that water baptism is the symbol. It's, it's kind of like the wedding ring, the sign of the real baptism that matters, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So water baptism doesn't save any more than wearing a wedding ring makes you married. What really matters is the thing the sign points to. And so then looking at that, okay, if water baptism is a picture of spiritual baptism, then what does that mean? The other reason for this aside is because our small groups, and I, I hope you're part of a small group, but our small groups are going through the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, a number of things occur and take place that may be unfamiliar if you look around the church at large. Certainly things seemed in some sense to be different then than they are now. And so I'll be dealing with the issue of baptism of the Holy Spirit, and next week Pastor Daniel will deal specifically with the issue of tongues. Um, primarily because of how confusing that particular issue can be and how many different voices there are about what it means are in, in Christendom and in the church. And so we're going to try to do a biblical understanding of baptism in the Holy Spirit, and next week, a biblical understanding of the gift of tongues. Let me give one other prefatory note, and that is this. For some of you, you may have grown up in different um, church cultures, different theologies, some of the things we say this week and next week may be challenging. Some of the things we say may generate further questions. That's great. Think about it. Come talk to us. We could easily be doing a 12-week series on this. And so we know we're not going to be able to cover everything, so I'd encourage you to, to be a Berean, put on, put on your glasses, read your Bible, and think through these things and come talk to us about it. And also, if, if, you, if I say something this morning, or if Pastor Daniel says something next week that you find challenging, you've never heard before, really think through these things. It'll be our goal to be extremely biblical. What does the Bible say about these things? What biblically should we expect them to be? So with that word of introduction, we're to dive in. And this morning, we're to deal with the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with four questions. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When does the baptism of the Holy Spirit occur? What does the baptism of the Holy Spirit accomplish? And what signs accompany the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So we want to know what it is, when it happens, what does it do, and are there any, 
How do you know it's happened? Are there any signs or things to look for that accompany it? And with that, then, we're going to dive into our first question. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago or a month or two ago, I told you that the word baptize is a word that the translators chose for some reason not to translate. It's simply a transliteration of the Greek verb baptizo. And it means, anyone, what, is, what does baptize mean? <coughs> Dunk, to dip, to immerse. It's just Dunking John doesn't have the same ring to it. Or, you know, First Dunking Church of Martinsdale doesn't have a, the same ring to it. But it just means to dunk, dip, or immerse. And even those who, whose practice of baptism is sprinkling will freely admit that is the word's primary meaning. And so it's to dip something, to dunk something, to immerse something. And we're going to see that symbolism as five people get immersed, dipped in water in a little over an hour. So that's what it means. So what does it mean then to be baptized, to be dipped, to be immersed in or with the Holy Spirit? Well, the first point to make is this. This concept, although we'll see it's a unique new covenant phenomena, was predicted in the Old Testament. So if you're open to Ezekiel 36, I'd like to read one of the many passages that predict this phenomena, this new covenant blessing. Ezekiel 36, in speaking about the new covenant, in verse 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Joel, um, the, not Pastor Joel, but the prophet Joel, although they are contemporaries. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> Prophet Joel, in chapter 2, predicting this, this baptism, this pouring out, it's always liquid imagery, whether it's sprinkling, whether it's a river, whether it's being baptized. In Joel 2, 26, it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So it's predicted. And so when John the Baptist shows up and he says, one is coming after me, I baptize with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize in the Holy Spirit, it's not an altogether new concept. Up to that point, it hadn't been called baptize, but again, it just means dip or dunk or immerse. And when you realize that, you see the continuity between passages like Ezekiel and Joel and the message of John the Baptist. So it's predicted. Now, turn to John 14, and I'll, I'll try to limit some of the turning to passages, but some of this is very important to see. This is a tricky issue, and it's an issue also in which there are many voices. So I want you to see this for yourself in the text. The big distinction between the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant and the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant can be seen in, in this one passage. The blanks there are this. The big distinction is with versus in. With versus in. The Holy Spirit was with God's people, working in and around and among God's people. And in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would be in God's people. John 14, verses 16 to 17. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to, do, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see those two prepositions? He is currently with the disciples and with God's people, but there's coming a day where he will be in, where he'll be poured upon God's people. So that's the big distinction. The Holy Spirit worked in and with and through God's people into the Old Covenant, but he did not indwell believers the way he does now. It's true that there were examples where the Spirit would come upon someone, but it would be a mistake to try to equate that to what we see in the New Covenant. If you, if you remember, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and the Holy Spirit left Saul. The Holy Spirit came upon David, and David, after witnessing the Holy Spirit depart from Saul, prays in Psalm 51, Oh, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And the reason for that is when God sent his Spirit into the Old Covenant to indwell someone, it was temporary. It was purely to equip them for a task or a function or service. It's very different than the pouring out of God's Spirit in this side of the covenant. So it was predicted as a distinct event of the new covenant. The big distinction is the with versus in. And the New Testament then predicts it as specifically something tied with Jesus, something that he would do. The, the phrase baptize in or with the Holy Spirit only occurs seven times in the New Testament. Seven times in the Bible. Four of which are in the Gospels on the mouth of John the Baptist declaring that Jesus will be the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. The, the Greek preposition can mean in, with, or by. But in every instance of those four times, the phrasing is identical. Twice in Acts, it is said to have occurred, and then once in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about it directly. That's all there is for text in relating to this. So it's predicted of Jesus and occurred at, occurred at Pentecost. So in Mark 1.8, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize or dip or immerse you with the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, it begins at Pentecost. Jesus ascends into heaven. He tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem, for they will receive the Holy Spirit in power. And they wait, and on the day of Pentecost... The risen Lord sends down his spirit, and Peter declares it as a fulfillment or a partial fulfillment of Joel 2. And the thing to understand is this. It's sort of the inauguration ceremony of Jesus as king. If you think of Philippians 2, where it says, that Because he humbled himself to the point of death, the Lord is, God has highly exalted him and given on him the name that is above every name. And so as Jesus ascends into heaven and is enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords, according to Ephesians 4, he gives gifts. And the gifts he gives are the gifts of the new covenant. And he gives his spirit and he pours it out on all flesh. And whereas before, the Holy Spirit would only come upon a select few people. And even then, for a brief amount of time, now all of God's people everywhere receive the Holy Spirit, are dipped, immersed with the Holy Spirit. So now turn to 1 Corinthians 12. I'll try to stay here for a little bit. 1 Corinthians 12. Like I said, there's only seven passages that address the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In four of them, we're just told Jesus will do it. We're not told much about it. We're just, Jesus is going to be the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In two, in Acts, we get a bit more information as we see what happens at Pentecost and then 
Peter again announces it in Acts 11, describing what happened to Cornelius and his household. But the only passage that really speaks about it directly, didactically, teachingly, is here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. But we'll start in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now that's probably the clearest statement. And, and to give you a comparison, turn back a page to chapter 10 to add some more clarity to this. 1 Corinthians 10.2, Paul speaks of another group of people being baptized. In 1 Corinthians 10.2, speaking of his, the fathers in the wilderness, he said they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And the reason why I think this is helpful, you can, you can turn back to 12.13 now, is what Paul says is we're baptized in something and then into something. It's the exact same way that phraseology works in 10.2. The fathers were baptized into Moses, or what is probably being meant there is into the Sinai covenant, the law of Moses. And they did it by passing through the sea in the cloud. So there was something they passed through, and they ended up in a new situation. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that's the exact same ordering here. For in one spirit, or by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So we passed through, we were dipped in something, and it results in a new relationship, in a new circumstance, in a new identity. And so point B here, my, my brief definition of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit then, it's the act by which Jesus baptizes a believer with the Holy Spirit into his body, the church. I'll read that again. It's the act by which Jesus baptizes a believer with the Holy Spirit into his body, the church. And I've underlined three things in that phrase. One, the person doing the baptizing. The New Testament's clear. Jesus is the one who will do this. He sends his spirit. There is the element of baptism. What is it that you are dipped or immersed in? In, in 1 Corinthians 10.2, it was through the sea. Here, it's the Holy Spirit. And then there is the new relationship. There is the new standing that is a result of this into his body. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's the act by which Jesus baptizes a believer, sends his spirit to baptize a believer with the Holy Spirit into his body, the church. That's my working definition of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the most clear and straightforward passage. So if that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then that brings us to our second question. When then does this occur? Now up to this point, I trust I've said nothing controversial, nothing challenging, but it's at this point in particular that there is some confusion in the church. Not necessarily this church, but in Christ's church worldwide. If you keep your finger here at 1 Corinthians 12, I want you to think about that. If the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what places us into the body of Christ, then one must conclude that if one is not baptized by the Holy Spirit, one is not part of the body of Christ. And if one is not part of the body of Christ, one is not saved. The blank here, and what I'm going to argue is, when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit occur? At salvation. At salvation. For by one spirit, 
We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. If you're not baptized by the spirit into the body of Christ, you have no share in Christ. You're not united with Christ. Or, a familiar passage, Romans 6, speaking of the same thing, 6, 3 to 4, do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. If you're not baptized into Christ's body, you're not baptized into his death, resurrection, and life. Or to put it even more emphatically clearly, Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Now, the reason I'm making this point emphatically, and some of you might wonder what's the big deal, is that this is precisely the point at which, in some churches, the, the teaching differs. And good, godly, Christ-loving, bible treasuring Christians can err on this point. And it's at this point in particular that I want to sort of give an example of what I mean. Now I'm going to read a differing view from the Assemblies of God, 16 Cardinal Doctrines. And my point in doing this is not to pick on them and not to um, look down on them. Actually, I would view them as probably, and I chose them as the church closest to us in thinking, closest to us in understanding of things. They're brothers and sisters. They're good people. So rather than picking some sort of fringe group way out there that's ridiculous, I thought, let's, let's hear from a contrary view from people that we would respect, people that we would love, people that we would embrace and, and, and worship God together with. So don't misunderstand why I'm picking this. I just would rather let someone else speak for themselves than me to tell you what other people say. And so on this point, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is cardinal doctrine number seven, This is what is said. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was the normal experience of all believers in the early church. Amen. With the experience comes the provision of power for victorious Christian living and productive service. Amen. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is separate from salvation and follows the new birth experience. That is precisely the point where I'm going to say, I don't think so. And so you judge for yourself if that's biblical. Now, I know, there's, I know there's a question, and I know there's some issues in Acts, and we're going to get to there in a second, but based on reading 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And then these statements about baptism uniting us with Christ's death and resurrection, and then that clear statement in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I don't see how you can conclude any other way. If you're not baptized by the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. You are not saved. You have no part in Christ. And so I'm going to have respectfully, at this point, disagree. Now, of course, there's a reason why they think that. They didn't just make that up. And it's because there are some confusing passages in Acts, which brings us to our next point. How, then, should we understand some of the accounts in Acts? And to be fair, there's three accounts in particular that would appear as though, first blush, sure looks like baptism of the Holy Spirit is separate from salvation. And and so, fair enough, there are three accounts in the book of Acts that, on first blush, would look that way. So I want to be 
upfront and honest about that. Um, I understand why they think that. I just think there's a better way to harmonize these passages, a better way to understand things. So how then should we understand the accounts next? In particular, Pentecost. The disciples in Pentecost are already saved, are they not? They're not, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit at their salvation. This is a separate event. And then in, in Acts 8, when Philip goes to Samaria, they, they are baptized, they believe, and it's not until Peter and John come down and lay on hands, they receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 19, there are disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus. And Paul encounters them and says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there's a Holy Spirit. And so Paul baptizes them again, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And based on those three passages, some, and this is pretty much the the broad line main view in the charismatic church in the world, conclude the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event from salvation. And that would be why they think that. So then what do we do with that? Well, I think there's two things we need to observe about Acts. The first is that the time period described in Acts is a unique period of time in salvation history. It is unique, and it is not going over and over again. And, and here, I'm not speaking about the question of whether or not miraculous gifts still occur. We can deal with that later. What I mean is, is this. The time period of Acts, there are two covenants in operation at the same time. If you turn to Hebrews 8, I'll, sh- I'll show you what I mean. It's unique in that one covenant is starting, it's, it's taking off, it's, it's being inaugurated, and another covenant is coming to an end. And so you get this weird overlap period. In Hebrews 8, you could ask Dave Lample for a f- further development of, of this passage. He's shaking his head, no, no, I, you, no you can't. Um, after just comparing the new covenant and the old covenant, And understand this, that Jesus purchases the new covenant. There's a promised new covenant that's coming, and Jesus purchases it. He pays for it, and then he delivers its benefits. And in Hebrews 8, the the writer quoting Jeremiah 31 is, is contrasting the superior nature of the new covenant with the old. And then he makes this amazing statement in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And what that means is even at the writing of Hebrews 8, in some sense, the old covenant is still functioning. It's terminating. It's, it's, it's winding down. It's shutting off. But it's still functioning. And, and a way to think of this, and this may seem complicated, it, it, is like this. Under the old covenant, what was required was faith in what God said. Under the new covenant, what is required is faith in Jesus Christ. You get the distinction? Under the old covenant, what was required is we go through Hebrews 11 and we look at the hall of faith. The one thing all these men and women have in common is God said something, they responded in faith. So God tells Abraham, get up and go. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you land. Abraham believed God. It was kind of him as righteousness. Joseph, even though he was a dignitary and rich in Egypt, he understood God had given them the land of Canaan, so he says, bury my body in my homeland. He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And on and on and on and on. And so one of the things we see under the New Covenant is that what one must believe is much narrower, much more specific. There is no name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So you've got to ask the question, at what point in time then does this sort of broader 
offer Nero. At what point in time is it no longer valid to say, I, I believed what God said in the scriptures? Well, no, you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. Is, is it the moment Jesus dies on the cross? Well, then you've got to ask, well, what about Israelites, God-fearing Jews, who live hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem? They haven't heard of Jesus yet. Are they suddenly cast out? Well, the answer is no, of course not. No, there's a time period where, where the gospel is going out to people who are already believers of the Old Testament. That's what we're seeing at Pentecost. We're seeing people who've already trusted. They've already come out to John the Baptist. God's about to send him as Messiah. We believe that. We repent and are baptized. We're looking for that Messiah. God sees that faith. He responds with justification. The disciples are already saved before they ever meet Jesus. Because they've responded to what God has said. They've responded to the final prophet of the Old Covenant with faith. What they haven't received until Pentecost is the new covenant blessings. That's, that's the concept that's going on here. That at Pentecost is the start of these new covenant blessings. I'll use a rather crude analogy. How, how many of you here have lived through the transition from dial-up internet to sort of the high-speed internet? How many of you can remember what that, that terrible noise? Somehow they couldn't silence that noise, right? It was always, you know, and it was like, oh, there it goes. Dial-up internet, right? I want you to imagine that there's a company, they've dial-up internet service, and, and so they've got their, their constituencies. Imagine all of Martinsdale's got dial-up internet. So they can get online, they can get connected. They, it's slow, could be faster, but it works. Some of you still have dial-up internet. There's a thing called high-speed internet. You should check, in, check into it. Um, but, but you can get connected. And then at some point, the, the company decides they're gonna upgrade to high-speed. They're not going to do dial-up. And so they let people know, in a few months, we're going to stop supporting dial-up internet. And during those few months, they're beginning to transition people, transfer people. People are upgrading. And let's just imagine that they, the company says, we're going to upgrade everyone who already has dial-up. They're going to get free upgrade to, uh, to high-speed internet. Well, there's going to be this weird transition period where some people still have dial-up. The technicians haven't found them yet. They haven't called into the company. And yet the vast majority of people are, are high-speed, and from here on out, the company is no longer signing up people for dial-up. They're transitioning out of it. That's what's taking place with the two covenants. When Christ comes, he tells his disciples in Acts 1.8 that they're to go out to... Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And the gospel's going out. And so the next point, then, is that frequently we see already saved men entering into new covenant blessings. In the book of Acts, what you're seeing, like as not, is not people getting saved. There's certainly that. But there's many occurrences for people who are already saved, people who have the low-speed internet. They have the low-speed low internet of the old covenant. The old covenant gave forgiveness. The old covenant had blessings, but the new covenant is so much better. The new covenant is so much better. And you're seeing people who are already in a relationship with God getting upgraded. That's what you see in Acts 2. And that's why it doesn't occur again. Because once they've transferred over, once people have gone from dial-up to high speed, they stop sending dial-out up anymore. And from there on out, everyone who becomes, um, who signs up, everyone who gets internet, only gets high-speed internet. Once the new covenant has fully taken over and the old covenant has fully terminated, all there are are 
people trusting in Jesus Christ and people receiving the benefits of the new covenant. That, that explains, I think, those three instances where we see delay. It's also interesting that those are the instances where the gospel is going first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then all the way out. And so it's, it's, it's atypical. And the book of Acts, I think, understands that. We even see that in Paul's question to the the disciples of John the Baptist in, in Acts 19. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, that there's no more dial-up. All there is, is is high speed. And so he says, all of us in one spirit were baptized into one body. From here on out, all those people who believe in Jesus, immediately receive the new covenant benefits. We're no longer seeing people transfer from old covenant benefits to new covenant benefits. Or another way to, to another illustration that I read that was helpful is imagine a town where people regularly have to go get water from a well, decide to build a water reservoir and hook up pipes to people. It's houses. And so they do that. And on a given day, they open the gate of the reservoir and the water begins to flow down the channels. And if you had a camera crew there, you could be in each house as you see the water start to come in and the water get to different houses at different times. And you could conclude, ah, this is a delayed thing. But once the water is fully reached out, anyone who moves to this town now immediately gets hooked up with running water. They don't start with, first you get your well water and then after a while you get running water. No, once that water is spread out through all the channels, anyone moving in, anyone building a new house immediately starts with running water. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts is that water spreading out as the gospel first goes to the Jews and then to the half-Jews, the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles and Cornelius at Ephesus and then out and beyond. That's, I think, the best way to, to, to do this. Otherwise, you end up pitting the book of Acts against Paul. And you don't want to pit Scripture against Scripture. You don't, you don't want to do that. The same mind is behind it all. So no, I, I emphatically believe the Scripture is clear that the Baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs with salvation. Okay, there's much more that can be said there, but we'll move on. Brings us to probably the most important question, then what does the baptism of the Holy Spirit accomplish? You could probably make a bigger list than this, but I picked out five things that I think are key. First and most importantly is what we've already seen. The baptism of the Holy Spirit provides union with Christ union with Christ. You are baptized into his body. You are baptized, according to Romans 6, into his death and his resurrection. What unites you with Christ, what makes it so that you share his death and his burial and his resurrection, it was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that united you with Christ. It was your faith which initiated all of this, but it was the actual means of the Spirit uniting you with Christ that actually transfers those benefits. If you're standing in Christ's righteousness, if you're clothed in the blood of the Lamb, it's because, due to the work of the Spirit, you've been united with Christ. Secondly, power to fight sin and to grow. Power to fight sin and to grow. Now go to Romans 8. We'll see this pretty clearly here. Romans 8.13. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How is it that Christians overcome sin? How is it that we fight and grow? How is it we can resist? It's not in our own strength. It's not gritting our teeth. 
It's by relying on the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says it this way. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So by virtue of the Spirit, being dunked, dipped in the Spirit, if you will, we have power to fight sin. We have power to grow. Third, adoption into God's family. If you just keep reading in Romans 8, after verse 13, he says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this is something, again, we can take for granted. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, that was revolutionary. You can go through the entire Old Testament. You will not find any individual Jew calling God Father. Israel corporately could do that. So Solomon in the prayer can say, God, you are our Father. But no individual Jew ever cried out, Dad, Father, to God. That that simply wasn't the relationship that existed. And then based on the new covenant, based on this spirit of adoption, Jesus, and then here Paul teaches, we get to call God Dad. Daddy, Abba, Father, a close, intimate term of endearment. And that's all because we've received the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit of adoption. This is what makes the new covenant so much better. Romans 8 is all about the betterness of the new covenant. You can can read that and, and see that. Fourth, leading in the scriptures, or teaching or leading in the scriptures. And here is, how many times in the Gospels does it say that the Jesus' disciples did not understand him? And yet, after the Spirit comes, they get it. Things click. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 2, I'm sorry, Paul writes this in verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Let me say that again. We have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because They are spiritually discerned. God gives his spirit, and in the coming of the spirit, our eyes open, and we can see and receive and accept and delight far more so in God's word than we ever could. Far more so. Jesus puts it this way in John 16. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, when he's poured out on all flesh, he will lead them in truth. And finally, gifting for serving the body of Christ. Gifting for serving the body of Christ. Turn turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. 
I know we're jumping around a lot this morning, but your, your, your endurance and long-suffering will be rewarded. I am quite confident. You're earning up crowns in heaven right now. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4. Now, he's speaking here about spiritual gifts, which is where Daniel next week will take us to a specific gift, the gift of tongues. What's going on with that? What are we to make of that? But he's speaking here in chapter 12 about the overarching concept of spiritual giftedness. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why is that? For the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And that's actually what sets up that passage. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members are one body, we though many are one body, so it is with Christ for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink one spirit. Paul is clearly connecting this idea of spiritual baptism and spiritual giftedness. So that when you received the Holy Spirit, you were given, according to the language of verse 7, each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Holy Spirit gave you some ability, strengthened some ability, is equipping you to serve the body. And that all comes because of the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. Which brings us then to our final question. What signs accompany the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now the reason, again, why I ask this question is because amongst those in the charismatic church, and there are many brothers and sisters in the charismatic church, not only do they often think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event that comes after salvation, but there's usually this additional doctrine, which is cardinal doctrine number eight. The baptism of Christians in the Holy Spirit, says this document, is accompanied by the initial physical sign of speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gives them audible expression. So to be clear, according to the Worldwise Charismatic Church, and I think the Assemblies of God Church is, is pretty much mainstream in that sense, their, their fair representation of the whole on this point, the baptism of the Holy Spirit not only occurs sometime after salvation, but when it occurs, there's always audible gift of languages, people speaking languages they do not know, they have not learned. And again, there's one or two examples in Acts that would seem to back that up. But here's the blank. Miracles and signs sometimes coincided with this baptism. Admittedly so. There, there's about three or four cases in Acts clearly where that occurs. But that's about it. And there are dozens of other passages in the book of Acts where people get saved. There's no mention of miracles. When Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit in the Jordan. Were there any speaking in tongues? Were there any signs or wonders? No. The disciples received the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 with signs and wonders and tongues. 
But there's not a word mentioned of the same thing happening to the 3,000 men who believe later on in that chapter. So sure, it can happen. It, it did happen at times. But it's by no means uniform. It's by no means every single time. And beyond which, there is no teaching in the epistles, there's no teaching in the Bible that states it will. So really what you have to do is focus on two or three examples and just decide that that becomes programmatic for the whole. The way you have to arrive at this conclusion is to say, okay, these two or three examples in Acts, that's the way it always happens. And that's simply an unwarranted assumption. It may happen that way. Certainly in Acts, does not always happen that way. And there's really no text that would say it always happens that way. It may happen that way. It did happen that way. Now, one of the things that makes it more challenging is that pretty much the church has recognized for the last 2,000 years, or just about, that starting at the beginning of the second century, about 100, 120, 130 AD, the miraculous, supernatural, miracle gifts started to die out. Now, that's a deduction we make. The Bible, that's, we're past the close of the Bible. Now, the Bible was finished being written by about 90, 80 or so. So we're past the Bible. But, but if you read church history, read the, the early church fathers, they, they acknowledge they're starting to disappear. So perhaps they're back. Perhaps God's doing something different. Who knows? But things clearly have changed since the first century. That, that seems clear enough. And so it could happen. I'm not saying it won't happen. But I just don't think there's a single text in the Bible that would demand that it happens, that would lead us to expect it will always happen, and certainly nothing that would challenge whether someone is baptized in the Spirit because it hasn't happened. And that's my, practically my biggest concern. If you've ever been told, well, if you've never spoken in tongues, then you've not been baptized by the Spirit, there just isn't text to back that assertion up. There's, there's two or three examples in Acts where that seems to happen, and it certainly can happen. And there's tons of others in Acts where it doesn't. And there's complete lack of any clear teaching to say that it always will. So then what would I say is the test? What signs accompany the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Final point. The true test is the fruit of the Spirit. That should seem obvious. How do you know you've got the Holy Spirit in you? How do you know you've received the Holy Spirit? How do you know you've been united to Christ? The Spirit's bearing his fruit in your life. And the fruit of the Spirit... It's not speaking in tongues or, or miracles. The fruit of the Spirit is, is Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 6.22. Do not be drunk with... Oh, sorry, Galatians 6.22. Is, that's, I got Ephesians and Galatians mixed up. I'm sorry. Galatians 5.6... No, 6.22. 5.22. Good grief. You are storing up crowns in heaven this morning. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against this there is no law. That's the work the Spirit does when he comes upon people. That is the work of the Spirit. That is the evidence of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. How do you know what type of tree you're dealing with? If it bears apples, it's an apple tree. We're Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. So what, what, what accompanies this filling of the Spirit? What accompanies that? How, what do we look for? 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You're rejoicing and you're singing and you're encouraging one another and you're submitting to one another and you're thankful to God in Christ. That's a mark and an evidence that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. It's, it's the much harder in some senses, much more plain, but far more beautiful work of the Spirit is, is bearing that fruit. Now, it'd be nice and exciting if we could always tell because we could do something amazing. We could, we could you know, perform a miracle, then that would be clear, but you get to be more like Jesus Christ, and the Spirit is going to work in you and shape you and bear that fruit, and that's, that's how we know we've received the Spirit. So next week... We will look specifically at the issue of tongues and, and what it should look like. Next week, we will dive into that. But, but this week, if, if you are here and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you have his spirit. His spirit dwells within you, and you can call God Father. And your sins have been forgiven because you've been united with his death and his burial and his resurrection. And I just want to encourage you with that. And, and lest anyone here be discouraged or fear that because you haven't had some supernatural experience, because you haven't spoken in tongues, that somehow... You are not a sharer in the Spirit. He, he gives out his Spirit to all flesh who call upon him, who trust in his name. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And Lord God, I just pray that you would help encourage us. Lord, you have not left us orphans. You have given us your word, and you have given us your Spirit. Oh, Lord God, help us to value and prize this gift and not to presume upon it. Lord, help us to understand the great privilege that we have. You live in us in your spirit, Lord. And you lead us in all truth. We need to call you daddy. You give us power to fight sin. Oh, Lord God, what, what great privilege we have, Lord. Help us to understand that, to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You're dismissed.